we are just kind of catch you guys up to speed a little bit on where we're at preaching-wise. If, if, you, if you are brand new or um, just if it's been a while or something, we are in the middle, kind of approaching the end now of a series uh, that we um, have been wanting to do actually for about, about a year. We're going to do it in the spring and it just didn't work out and so we, uh, we pumped it to the fall here. But on a variety of issues topically surrounding sex, gender, marriage, and the gospel. And so it's kind of a hodgepodge title of sorts to kind of cover a bunch of bases that uh, relate to sexuality. The short version, I guess, of this title would be, would be like gospel sexuality or something. So how the gospel of Jesus Christ informs our understanding of all these kinds of things. Uh, and so we covered a lot of bases. We started broad, and the whole uh, order of this series was very intentional as well. We started broad just by talking about creation and gender. So the very beginning of the Bible, gender's talked about. The very beginning of the Bible, two chapters in, there's already a marriage happening. There's already intercourse. Sex is happening. There's a wedding happening. Uh, Adam is, is referring to Eve as his wife, not just a woman, but his wife. And so you already have this stuff going on at the very beginning of the Bible. And so we started there, talked about marriage and sexuality, uh, uh, or marriage and singleness, rather. And then last week, uh, sexual sin kind of broadly. And then these, these next two weeks, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to hone in a little bit on some very specific things today is homosexuality, and I'll talk about why we're doing this here in a second, and then next week is gender and church polity, uh, which is a whole other kind of dimension of this thing, but it's a very important, uh, very important piece to our understanding of sexuality. The Bible talks about this stuff, which is why we're, why we're doing this. Um, so today is homosexuality. We're giving its own sermon. Uh, this has sort of come up, kind of in passing last week. Spencer talked a little bit about it, at least read from it, uh, read from the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6, where it's kind of listed out amongst kind of a list of sins, homosexual behavior. Uh, but, why, so, but today we're going to give its own sermon to this whole thing. It's very important. So why, why are we doing this? A few, a few introductory asides to this whole topic. Um, first, uh, I, I mentioned it's important. It's, it's, uh, it's important to talk about, just kind of basically. Second, the Bible talks about this stuff uh, uh, in, in connection with other things as well. More broadly speaking, sexuality, we'll talk about that. Uh, third, God cares. God cares about this stuff too. Uh, some of you have asked us about this before. It's a big deal culturally as well. I'm just listing out a bunch of reasons why we're doing this here. Um, actually, I get emails from people who don't go to Hiawatha who ask us what our perspective is on this before they come here. So this is a big deal culturally. They want to know, like, what does Hiawatha believe and is it kind of a safe place for us to explore, attend, have friendships, that, that, that kind of thing too. So, um, so on the leadership side of things, we, we, you know, we, we, we just know this is a big, this is a big deal. Uh, some of you also might have same-sex attraction, and you're wondering what the Bible says about this, or you're just wondering, uh, you're just trying to figure that out. You're kind of confused over it, and so that's another reason why we're doing this today. And then sexuality in general should not be a taboo thing in the church. Uh, we, we care here about truth, love, and unity, and that can't happen if you don't talk about things. If you don't talk about things, you can't have, you can't have the truth, you can't have love across maybe disagreeing uh, perspectives, and you can't have unity across those perspe- perspectives either. You have to talk about them to have those, those three things. And so uh, those are values here. Uh, that's the first aside, all that together. The, the second thing is um, we don't talk about this stuff every week. Uh, this is the second time in 12 years I've preached on this, and where we've preached on this here as a church. We talk about it a lot more elsewhere in different settings, but in terms of like from the pulpit, uh, in terms of a sermon, this is the second time in 12 years. Uh, we're 12 years old as a church, that's why I said 12 years. But. So visitors, if this is your first Sunday, don't let this first sermon you're hearing here confuse you on what our bullseye is as a church. Uh, for us, the bullseye is Jesus. For us, the bullseye is the gospel, his death and resurrection, not this particular topic. But with that said, I hope that today you'll see how the gospel relates to all this stuff 
and we'll talk about that later on. The third thing here, the third aside is I'm speaking for our elders, our overseers, our pastors here when I preach this, which means you're going to hear Hiawatha's official position on the matter, but that does not mean that everyone who calls this church home agrees on every particular detail of what I'm going to say. There are more important things I'm going to say today and less important things that all sort of relate to this thing, and uh, on the minors, there's probably disagreements. Um, nor is any of this required to believe in simply to attend our services. That probably goes without saying, but I just want to make sure it's clear. Uh, that's, that's just not where we're at. But with that said, we are going to preach, I'm going to preach today, what we think every Christian should believe about homosexuality, right? I and mean, that probably goes without saying too, otherwise, what am I even doing up here, you know? So, um, we're going to preach on what we think every Christian should believe about homosexuality, especially the majors, and I'll talk about that, uh, but minors as well. Fourth, this will be a life of the church sermon. This is a, like, what does the Bible have to say about this sermon? A, how does the gospel apply to this sermon? Not a topical lecture or a mini class in gender psychology. It's not what this is. This is a, what does the Bible have to say? How does the gospel inform this? Where's the good news, actually? in this, at least in a contrasting way, but also kind of a a relational way. I'll get there later. So Jesus will be the hero, as he always is. And sexuality, more broadly, will be addressed as something all of us just deal with, whether it's same-sex attraction or not. And so the last aside, then, is if you do experience same-sex attraction, this is a safe place. Uh, We're not a perfect church. Uh, We're a bunch of sinners being saved by grace. So, like, whenever I say it's a safe place, it doesn't mean that this church or any church will like never hurt you or anybody here uh, because we're sinners, we're messed up, we're selfish. Uh, we need the blood of Christ to make us not that. And so, but with that said, though, the Holy Spirit is here, and this is a safe place, and I'm speaking for our leaders when I say this especially. Uh, you're in a safe place, and you're not alone. Jesus welcomes you. It's, it, it is homosexual behavior is in homosexual orientation. It's not like the unforgivable sin, contrary to what you might have heard implied by other Christians at some point in your life. In fact, attraction itself is not sin at all. Lust is sin, and behavior, like sexual behavior outside the marriage context, is sin, but not attraction. And so more on that here in just a minute. So here's our position, just to kind of come right out and say this is, this is a part of our elder or pastoral statement of faith as a church. Let me just read from this, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. So as a church, we believe that as the, crea- as the creator of marriage, God defines it as a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman reflecting his love for his people and more particularly Jesus's singular love for his church or called elsewhere in the Bible his bride. And so this then by by definition and implication states that homosexual behavior including gay marriage is sinful, disordered, confused, not intended in the beginning by God, and not able to reflect the gospel in the same way as healthy heterosexual marriage. So it's a twisted and broken and counterfeit version of the ideal. One other thing to say, though, kind of in a qualifying manner here before we move on, is, uh, so we'll talk about kind of the what and the why today. It's sort of the what does the Bible say, and then why does it say it. Uh, We'll spend more time in the why here. Uh, but before we get there, this is the thing that I, you know, some of you may have come in here thinking, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times. Some of you may never have heard this, though, and so uh, we'll, we'll spend some time sort of twisting this in the light a little bit and seeing this, this idea, especially as it relates to homosexuality, but it could be applied to other things as well. But the, the idea here is that the, there's a difference between temptation and sin. 
A stark difference, actually. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted, yet he never sinned. And so as this applies to homosexuality, the orientation or the predisposition or the attraction or the temptation towards same-sex sexual activity is not inherently sinful. It's a product of the fall, you could say, or it's disordered, you could say, yes, but it's not the same thing as sin. Acting out on homosexual desires in mind or body is sinful, however, and is to be condemned in the same way heterosexual sexual sin is. They're all in the same category. So if this is the case then, then it's very possible to be Christian, gay, but celibate, abstaining from sex and marriage. The, the, the two main sources here that I'm uh, citing today are, and actually I'm not going to cite them a ton, but I do want to mention them as helpful resources if you want to read them. I'm going I'm to mention them later on. But Wesley Hill and also Sam Albury. I mentioned Sam Albury a couple of weeks ago in reference to the singleness sermon. He was the guy referenced uh, there as well. But uh, these two men who wrote these two books, so is God Anti-Gay, but then Wesley Hill's book is Washed and Waiting. Both of these men are self-professed gay but celibate Christians. So they're gay men, but they're celibate. And what that means is they, they recognize that acting out on their homosexual orientation, so to have sex with other men or to marry men, would be sinful. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not God's design. But who are also not changing to a heterosexual orientation at the same time. Not because they're against that idea. That happens sometimes but because they would say their same-sex attraction is just ingrained. It's not going away. And so they would say then that, that the goal here, um, the, as it says here on the bottom, I'll just read from this, but the, the goal is not necessarily for gay men and women to change their orientation, but to cling to Jesus and find their identity in him rather than their sexuality and to remain celibate. And so as a church then, speaking on behalf of our overseers here too, our, our pastors and lay pastors, we, we would agree with this. Like this, this is an important sort of uh, distinction, qualification to this whole thing uh, to, to highlight. And it actually serves as kind of, it depends, it depends on your background and what you brought in here and sort of your experience and all that, of course, but it's a bit of a healthy middle biblical ground uh, between sort of the uber fundamentalistic kind of conservative religious right perspective and the wear your sin on your sleeve, kind of uber pro-gay agenda, liberal perspective. It's a bit of a healthy kind of middle ground. And, and like Jesus did a lot in his ministry, he, he offends the conservatives and the liberals because, you know, he, he welcomes messy people to himself. He dines with prostitutes, right? He hangs out with people who are very sexually confused and people who are engaged in all kinds of sexual perversion, perversions and sins. And that offends religious people. It offends people who think they're better than that. Remember, in Jesus' day, there are very good, so-called good people, religious people, who are looking at Jesus do this stuff, like dining with prostitutes and saying, I'm better than that, why aren't you eating with me? And so Jesus is very, he kind of pulls away from like the fundamentalistic kind of conservative side, and he offends that side by welcoming all kinds of people to himself, including uh, homosexual people, whether they're acting out on that or not. He dines with them, he loves them, he moves towards them. He calls them to himself. So that's, that's the one side, but the, the other side is, and this is on the bottom here, Jesus doesn't affirm 
our lifestyles other. So whenever people talk about are you open and affirming as a church, what, what, what they're saying is are you open to the idea that homosexuality is actually a good thing. At the core, it is a, it is a good, God-honoring, uh, actually at the core, just like, heter- like a healthy heterosexual relationship or marriage, it is, it is a perfect in a sense. It's, it's God's ideal. Jesus doesn't affirm. So what we say here a lot is the gospel and Jesus welcome all, but doesn't affirm our lifestyles as though they're always okay. He calls us to turn and repent and to be with him, as it says here. He calls us to die to our old selves and live anew with him. With him, Christ is our identity rather than our sexuality. So the Christian way of thinking is saying, I have a sexuality, but more important than that is Christ himself. Like, he is my identity. I, my old self has died with him. I, I've been crucified with Christ. And now, who, who lives is, is Christ within me. It's no longer I who live. I don't live anymore. But Christ himself lives within me, and so... My preferences are less important than Jesus, the God who who's came into the world to save me and love me and, and die in my place. So Jesus never says, this, this, is a, this is like American pop psychology, or religious pop psychology would say this, but Jesus never does. But the statement is, you can be whatever you want to be. Just embrace who you are. That's like pop psychology, but Jesus never says that. Jesus welcomes everyone. But he never, like, in turn says, he doesn't affirm them and say, whatever you want to be is, like, okay. He never does that either. And so really this idea then, so pulling from this, you know, healthy but offensive to both sides, uh, third way, or this kind of Jesus biblically grounded, like, middle ground, it it sort of offends both sides, it offends the fringes, but it calls people in from the fringes as well to see a different way. I'll talk about that a little bit later on here as well. But even just the way we're starting, these can be hard things to hear for conservatives. Uh, Some of these things we've been saying about qualifying what is sin and what is temptation, how they're different, and how Jesus dines with people who are just perverse and messed up. People like us, wherever we are with with our orientation, we're all sexually perverse. And he dines with people like that, prostitutes. And it's really, really hard for people who think they're good to look at that and say, that's right for the God of the universe to do that. Uh, so even, even like the way we're framing some of these things can be hard for the fundamentalist, for the religious right, but then it's also equally difficult for the, the extreme left. Uh, I'm doing this your guys' way, aren't I? Am I saying left? This is your left, right? So if I'm saying left and I'm doing this, that's going to be confusing, but whatever. Um, I'm thinking my left, but anyway. The left, the, the, the religious left or the, the, the kind of cultural left, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the gay agenda or pro-gay agenda or pro-marriage, gay marriage uh, kind of side too, uh, it offends that as well because it calls us away from that to a new way of thinking. And so we'll spend a little bit of time now, the rest of our time on talking more about that side, how um, explicitly and implicitly the Bible teaches against homosexual behavior. But again, when I say this here, that it's about behavior. It's not necessarily about orientation uh, because that may never change for some of you if you have that or if you have friends who are kind of in that or if you do have that someday. That may not change. It may. God can change that. He can sort of heal that and and bring order into that disorder for sure. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And so when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it's the behavior that's denounced more than just the the predisposition or the orientation. So, all right, so let's let's talk about this explicitly first. Explicit biblical teaching against homosexual behavior. 
Um, and, and again, understand there's a lot more we can say, but if this is new especially, this will give you something to kind of hang your hat on intellectually and say, oh yeah, that's right, it does say that, or I forgot that, or I never knew that it was quite that clear. And so this is a, this is a, di a disclaimer though. Aside from the fact that God never celebrates a gay marriage in the Bible, he never celebrates homosexual behavior, so all arguments to the contrary are arguments from silence. And also, aside from the fact that God cares about procreation, which is not possible with two men or two women, and also the fact that the first two people were a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and so you have marriage and intercourse happening in the second chapter of the Bible. So aside from all of that, which are strong arguments, we're going to build off that, though. Aside from that, the Bible also says uh, things like this. In Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, but only those who repent from those things and, and believe in Jesus. And so, um, but note again here, it's those who practice homosexuality, so not like those who have a predisposition towards it or same-sex attraction kind of basically, but those who practice and actually have sex with someone of the same gender outside a marriage context or even within a marriage context. Both of those are, uh, as Leviticus says, an abomination and disordered. And then Romans 1 as well, which is probably one of the best places to go in the New Testament. It says, and I'm jumping right in the middle of something, kind of a bigger context here, but just for time's sake, we'll pick up in verse 24, where it says, speaking of like a fallen creation that we all share in, so people who have rebelled against him uh, and how God's wrath's being revealed against humankind, it says, therefore God gave them, fallen humanity, those who rebel against him, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. All right, so basically what's going on here is in speaking about how exactly the wrath of God is, is kind of starting to be revealed against humankind, like even currently, Paul, Paul, the author here, is saying to the Roman church, he's writing this letter and he's saying that God has given people over to their desires. He sort of said, all right, if that's what you want, I'm starting to let you go. And it's, it's, it's actually a form of judgment for God to do that. Like people are suppressing, holding back the truth, and he's starting to kind of let them go into it. So they kind of get what they want, which is not him. They kind of get themselves. And so we're starting to see that even right now in the world. We see pictures of how God's wrath is starting to come into the world. This is one like visual we get to it. So God has given people over to their desires because they exchanged the truth about God and Jesus and the gospel in themselves. They exchanged that for a lie because they resisted the truth with force. That's what suppression means and refused to believe in him and his ways. One of those desires, then, being homosexuality that acts out. And it's interesting to note here, too, and I highlight it just for clarity, that um, the way he talks here is, you know, he says, the Bible says, the exchanging of truth for a lie is correlated to exchanging natural relations for same-sex relations. And so, in other words, saying, I'm throwing out the truth about God 
is closely related to saying, I'm throwing out his natural and theological order for something else. And we might not think that way. We might be able to separate those in our mind, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible's saying, you know, throwing out God is like throwing out heterosexuality, basically. They're, they're linking them together. Not that that's the only like, connection we can make. There's a lot of things that we could throw in that latter, that latter category. But here, one of the things here is sexual sin that looks, looks homosexual, at least in some, some form. It could be heterosexual too. But here, homosexuality is a big part of that. So then this, this is the big thing. And Wesley Hill in his book has a whole chapter on this, basically, or at least a longer argument that I'm not going to cite. But um, this is really helpful, and even as, as a gay man, to kind of look at this and make these same types of observations. But he, what he says, too, and I'll say the same thing, because that's what this says, uh, is homosexual behavior is not a worse sin than any other. It just happens to be a special picture of how we all Whatever our sexual orientation, we all have turned in on ourselves rather than the one that's different from us. God. And so it's a picture of how we've all self-gloried. We've kind of worshipped the self. The idea of like a man having sex with a man is turning in on the self. Or a woman with a woman is a turning in on the self and saying that I'm worshipping something just like me, sexually. And so... It's a picture of how we all have self-gloried and suppressed the truth. So gender similarity sexually, or in other words, homosexuality, tells the wrong story. It's a story of the worship of the self and the rejection of the other who is different from us. And we'll talk more about this in a second, but what healthy heterosexual sexuality, or like in a marriage context, says is there's diversity there. There's difference. Just like there's difference between you or all of you are Christians here, you're at the church, there's a difference between you and God. He's not like you, and yet he loves you. That's imaged in heterosexual marriage in a way that in, with homosexual sexual activity it just isn't in the, latter, in the latter piece. So I'll talk more about that, but that's basically what we're seeing here is sin, rejecting God, looks like turning in on the self, and that expresses itself sometimes in homosexuality. Whether we're homosexual, like, uh, sort of, like, you know, or orientation-wise or not as a person, what this is saying is we all have done this, though. Like, it's a special picture of that. A homosexual behaviorist um, is a special picture of that, but all of us have done this, whether we're homosexual or heterosexual. We've all turned in on ourselves, and that's just one visual to it. All right. Anyway, so that's more explicit stuff on teaching against homosexual behavior. Now let's talk more about... Um, the implicit or symbolic biblical teaching against homosexual behavior. So this is more of the why. And I kind of got at this just in terms of how I was ending the last section, but this approach answers the why versus just the what. So why is homosexual behavior sinful versus just the what of particular Bible verses? And I'd encourage all you guys to, to, to think this way and to argue for this perspective, not just from the what. So don't just say there's, Le, there's Leviticus 18 verse and you know what, God just... I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's... Not important, it is. It's in God's word. That's a part of this argument, but um, the why here is more of a powerful argument, actually. It's, it's a, um, we need to marry it to the what here, I think, to have a full, more well-rounded, gospel-centered approach to how we talk about this stuff with each other uh, and with people who aren't Christians yet and who just have questions about this, maybe, or whatever the case is. So implicit or symbolic biblical teaching against homosexual behavior. So, again, 
The why versus the what. And, and the why has to do then with the fact that God is telling a story. And if you guys were here last week, Spencer talked about this a lot. That is uh, one of the most important things I hope you get out of this series is that there is a story going on in the world that's bigger than you. And you were born into. So it was already happening before you were here, before I was here. And we were born into it. God's telling the story. It looks like it looks like history, but it looks like biblical and theological history more particularly. But it looks like history. We're all born into it. And God is the author. And gender and, and sexuality are, are a big part of, of, this, of this story. But God's telling a story, and, it, and it's one that benefits us. So if you don't know what the story is, it's a good story. It's, a, it's the story of stories. It's one that climaxes in his son, Jesus Christ, but is reflected in a healthy faithful, lifelong, committed, heterosexual marriage in a manner that homosexual relationships or or unhealthy heterosexual marriages cannot tell. And the story in a nutshell is basically a story about God's love. So when we talk about what is the story, there's so many ways to talk about this, but it's a story about God's love, but not, when we talk about God's love, it is not broad or vague or undefined. It is a particular kind of love where he, as a self-professed spiritual husband, pursues, woos, and ultimately fights for and dies for his wife, the church, and in this, marrying her to himself spiritually. And so uh, Jesus then dying on a cross for the church's sins is conveyed in marital language all over the Bible. In Old Testament, kind of big picture terms, God is called a husband by name. He, he's a father, but also a husband to his his bride, his people, the bride of his people. So, and then in particular in the New Testament, this is, this is how the gospel is talked about. It's like, this is why marriage exists. To, to, base, to basically declare to the world, this is Christianity. Look at a healthy marriage between a man and a woman, a healthy one. That's Christianity. That's like, it's, it's not like identical one-to-one, but that's, that's basically what we're seeing is a picture of Jesus being like the good husband who dies for his wife and lays his life down physically or, or metaphorically on a daily basis. So basically, then, as Christians, then, we, we, at least we should, God's glory in this story is most important. Every word of the Bible, every aspect of creation itself is somehow subservient to this story. So Wesley Hill, then, um, says here on the bottom here, uh, Wesley Hill says the gospel for the early church, but this is true for the church of all time, but speaking of early Christians, they talk this way more. The gospel for the early church was a comprehensive scheme or story they used to structure all dimensions of existence. I love this. The gospel was, was a comprehensive scheme or story they used to structure all dimensions of existence, which includes what? Marriage, gender, sexuality, all of it. It was like the gospel was like the, the, the stream that kind of flowed under, the subterranean stream that flowed underneath all of it. It undergirded all of it. It gave meaning to all of it. All dimensions of human existence, but, but sexuality being a big piece to this. And so marriage and gender, two huge pieces to it. Husbands being Christ figures, wives being church figures. So heterosexual marriage then being a part of this comprehensive scheme. And last week, Spence, I think it was last week, but at some point we've, Actually, pretty much every sermon we've mentioned this verse, so never mind. I was going to say it was last week. This has come up a lot, but this is, this is why we ordered the whole series this way. We're building off of the foundation of the earlier things. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, died for her, bled for her. Husbands, live that way to your wives. Wives, as the church submits to Christ, so you also should submit to your husbands in everything. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. It's hard to understand this, but what I'm saying is, it, marriage, refers to Christ in the church. We don't define it. We don't, we don't like give the definitional bounds to it. None of that. God creates it to be an image of his love for his people, and that happens to be, to be a very heterosexual image. So Ephesians 5 gets at this. It's a scheme, the gospel is, a comprehensive scheme that structures all dimensions of existence. Husbands are Christ figures and wives, in, in the marriage context, wives are church figures. And when they love each other, and when the husband especially dies for his wife, it shows off the gospel. And so the problem then with homosexual marriage and sex and even dating is it doesn't image this stuff. It doesn't, sh- it doesn't tell the same story. It's counterfeit. But rather consists of either two Christ figures or two church figures. So with, with like a gay relationship, it's two Christ figures, two men. And in a lesbian relationship, it's two church figures. It's not, it's, it, it, is, it is decidedly not the same thing. Alberry says this in his book. He says, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church. It just can't. Instead, only reflecting Christ and Christ, or church and church. Ray Ortland says, similarly, he says, just this is widening out a little bit, he says, marriage is not just another mutation of human social evolution, like democracy. It's a divine creation intended to reveal the ultimate romance guiding all of time and eternity, This is the real reason why same-sex marriages are wrong. They pervert the mystery of the gospel. Or to put it another way, and I've kind of gotten at this already, but there's not the same diversity between two men or two women as there is between God and the church. See, a big part of this has to do with diversity. God has created men and women similar but different as he is different from us to help tell the story of a stronger party leading and loving a less strong party. And we've already talked about this in this series. I think it was the first, the first sermon, but it came up. 1 Peter 3 talks about this. I'm not going to quote it, but um, verbatim, but I'll allude to it here. So as, as we've already talked about, most husbands are physically stronger than their wives. Like they have more muscle mass. And they're going to win an arm wrestling probably 99.9% of the time. So if you're the 0.1%, praise God. That's awesome. It's not wrong to be a strong, like physically strong woman. So keep on lifting your weights. That's great. Uh, but basically, for the most part, most husbands are stronger, they have more muscle mass, um, all things being equal, that's just, that's, you can't argue against that, and no one really does. So, um, but, but obviously that can be abused, and there, and there are some exceptions, but whenever this does play out in a marriage, which is pretty much all the time, the difference between genders becomes an important element in helping tell the story of a God who's different than us and stronger than us, but who loved us gently by dying for us and serving us rather than crushing us. And so this is why, like, the heterosexual, you know, marital story tells a story of a stronger party laying his strength down for the weaker party. This is 1 Peter 3, basically directly. This is Ephesians 5. This is why there's diversity in genders, because there's diversity between you and God. Homosexuality can't tell that story. And so if you, if you value, think about it this way. If you value diversity... Our culture does. But I'm speaking to you guys here and myself. 
If we value diversity, then we should value heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. And if you value the gospel above all things, Christian, homosexual marriage and sex should concern you because it doesn't tell as beautiful or, or diverse or as true of a story. Instead, it tells a counterfeit one, not the one that you cherish. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like with a, if you value the gospel in a homosexual relationship, we're seeing an image of a story that, that's not at the core of what you believe. It's like an image of a story that, that, you, that you don't cherish. God didn't turn in on himself. He gave himself for one who was qualitatively other than him and different. Us. Praise be to God. And so you might be asking here at this point, you know, can't a, a um, like a, a homosexual relationship still consist of some kind of sacrificial love and commitment? Then that's a great question. Maybe some of you are asking that now. Can a homosexual relationship still be kind of healthy? And on one level, of course, that's true to a degree. But three, three quick things to that. One, just because one type of homosexual relationship is less harmful to people and to others doesn't make it right. Two, the Bible never qualifies this as a type of approved homosexual behavior. And three, God is not telling the story of a broad, undefined, random love in the world, but a very specific kind of love, a husband-like sacrificial love specifically for a wife-like entity. That's the only kind of love the Bible talks about. That's it. There's no other kind of love the Bible talks about. That's it. The church is never called a husband in the Bible. And Jesus is never called a wife. And so God's not flipping a coin here. It's not like this random, oh, it just kind of worked out this way once in history. Jesus is never called a wife, and the church is never imaged, alluded to, or flat out called a husband in the Bible. That's because we just aren't, and we, we never will be. So again, this is the greater gospel story for all Christians that should matter more than anything, even more than our comfort or, or ourselves. It should structure our whole existence. You know, we, we should think, um, just like I was born, and, and this is, um, I was thinking this week about gender fluidity as well, where our culture is with that these days, and how you know, when I was a kid, it was like, if you just kind of felt like the opposite sex for a while, you felt like, man, all my other friends are interested in, in, in like in my case, interested in girls, but I don't know if I am yet. Um, we just had like space there to like relax, you know, and just not even think about it. But today it's like, you know, if, if you have a moment of that, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, maybe I should have been a man, you know, or I should have been a woman. Like it's instantaneous, you know, where, and that's just where we're at, where people, oh my gosh, you know, if, if you're a, a girl and, and you think, you, I, I'm interested in traditionally understood, like, male things, all of a sudden, there's no, there's no, like, space or safety net anymore in culture where you can just kind of exist there and just still be a woman, but enjoy monster truck rallies or football or, help me out, well, whatever. I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to stereotype. They are stereotypes. I'm saying it's fine. But I feel like it's, it's that we, we're in this space now as a culture where it's, it's instantaneous, where, oh my gosh, I'm, I don't have this deep attraction to someone of the opposite sex right now. That must mean I shouldn't have been a man. That's where we are. But it's like for most of history, that was never the case. But right now, our culture is not helping us with having this like instantaneous question everything and, and be fluid with, with gender uh, you know, and, and question it all based off of your feelings. 
But anyway, so that was a huge digression. But what I was thinking about is um, this whole story piece. Just like you and I were, were born into a world that was spinning just fine before we were here. It was spinning just fine, right? I mean, there was a story going on that you and I weren't a part of, and then we were born into the world, and it, and it kept spinning at the same speed. We didn't, like, change the speed of it. We didn't change anything, right? We're just kids just lying there, drooling. It's like we didn't change anything. Just like we were born into a world that was spinning just fine without us here, so were you and I born into a divine story that we don't have the luxury of changing but we were reborn into it. And this story just happens to be extremely heterosexually imaged. And so if you don't feel that way, if you, don't, if you aren't heterosexual, that's okay. I mean, Jesus loves you and welcomes you, but it doesn't mean that we have the luxury in the church or outside, but just speaking to us as, as Christians, the luxury to kind of change that, or we should freak out and think, oh, the Bible can't be right because I'm feeling this. There's a greater thing going on, and it's a story. It's a story. It's the best story ever. And it's extremely heterosexually imaged and defined, and that should be celebrated. That's why the Bible says, celebrate marriage, hold it in honor in the church. Because when we do that, we're at least subconsciously, if not explicitly, celebrating the gospel when we do that. The husband of Christ dying for the wife, uh, the, the church. All right, so, and I think... For, for gay Christians, too, who are captivated by this story, you know, this is why Wesley Hill, and actually I'll just, I'll just read from him here. He says, I abstain from homosexual behavior as a gay man because of the power of the scriptural story. Isn't that great? As a gay Christian man, he abstains, he's celibate because he's so captivated by the gospel story. And the gospel story would conflict with him having sexual sinful behavior with another man. It wouldn't, they don't go together. He's more captivated by Jesus than he is his homosexual desires. It's more important for him. It, it, it is the truer story than the counterfeit one he would tell if he sought marriage. He abstains because he's captivated by the story of a husband like God loving a wife like church. See, there is all, all this is to say that there, there's more at stake here than simply our understanding of one or two verses in the Bible that seem to prohibit homosexual behavior. The entire biblical storyline is at stake. God's love, defined the way the Bible defines it, is at stake, which means everything is at stake. Everything. It, it's, 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 it should not surprise us when churches start to embrace other ways, counterfeit ways of thinking, whether it's gay marriage or whatever, it's, it's no surprise that they aren't orthodox anymore after a while. Like, you, you just don't have any, ex any examples, really. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there's an exception out there. Maybe for a time. But you just don't have examples of healthy, thriving churches that embrace gay marriage and the homosexual narrative and that can also affirm the gospel because it is expressly heterosexual in, in imagery and only that. And so it's usually a slippery slope to kind of away from orthodoxy into this mishmash of wishy-washiness. And sadly, it happens all the time. But there's a reason, this is why I'm saying this. Everything's at stake here, guys. It's not like we have, oh, well, we can disagree to disagree. I mean, kind of. Yeah, we can have unity and love for each other in the church for sure, and we should. We can disagree a little bit. But, I, but in terms of like what we should really strive after me thinking about, there's only one right answer here. There, there, the Bible's really clear about right and wrong but also about the why. 
there's a bigger story going on here than, than just ourselves. So, All right, so much more to say, guys, but let me just uh, let me close the few things here. Where do we go from here? Uh, first of all, to those of you who presently with same-sex attraction, uh, please hear this in, the, in and throughout all of this. I hope it was clear, but just in case if it wasn't. You are saved by grace, just like the rest of us, not by works and not by how well you overcome your homosexual desires. You're not a lesser Christian, you're not a weirder Christian, and you're not a lost cause Christian. God may help you to change or become more heterosexual, whatever that means. Well, I know what it means, but you know, it may be kind of weird for you or confusing, but um, God may help you to change. I've seen that happen before in people I, I've known who are gay, and they're married now with kids, and so I've seen that happen. Or he may not do that, and he may call you to a life of celibacy as you cling to him and find love relationally in friendships with other Christians. Remember, singleness and celibacy is not a second-tier thing. It's not bad. It's not a punishment. Jesus and Paul were single. Uh, Shane Claiborne says, we can live without sex. We can. Jesus did just fine. And Paul did, and, you know, so people every day do it just fine. But we can't live without love. You can live without sex, but you can't live without love. And this is why we continually preach the need for the church to have deep, sacrificial, committed friendships. So, um, to those of you in this category, or if you um, have been or, or will someday, do not run away from Christ. He loves you. That's why we sang that song before. As you are, he loves you. He wants to dine with you and save you and address the disorder in your life, but he welcomes you. And his message for you is not change, but take refuge underneath me and believe that I've died for you. So don't run away from him. He is a loving, welcoming Savior, but also don't see him as this kind of affirmer of your, your lifestyle. Stay close to Jesus, believe in him, rest in him, but also repent and turn from your old way of living to be with him and identify as a Christian more than your sexuality. Stay close to Jesus by way of his church. All right, so that's the first thing, just to address that. Second, ministering to the fringes, to the religious fundamentalists and the pro-gay activists. I kind of talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into it in, in too much depth, but just remember this uh, because this is a big part of it. It's not just about the issue. It's about people who are on the fringes from both sides, conservative and liberal, who just hated what I said. And that might be some of you in the room or it might be people that we, who come to church someday or just, I mean, hashtag Minneapolis, right? And so this is where we live. Um, but, and we love our city. But just, like, how do we minister to the fringes, not just kind of within the church, but how do we minister to the fringes in the church or outside? It starts by remembering that Jesus turned away Pharisees, good religious people, and the extremely hard-hearted pagan at the same time. He turned away good people and bad people. And as we live out the gospel of Christ, we will do the same. So I think it's just freeing to know that, that if you're a Jesus person, good people will hate you and bad people will. Because you'll be, you'll be taking this road that's not affirming of either side. It's so, it's so grace-centered that conservatives will hate it because they, they think they're better. They think they deserve something. And liberals will hate the repentant side, the, the fact that Jesus had to bleed for how bad we are. You know, it, it's like, it, it's kind of similar, I realize that, but from different, for different reasons, we, we will, because we cherish that message, we will offend both as well. It just, it just happens. So we'll speak the truth that the gospel is this comprehensive story 
and it's an abomination, and the world will hate us for that message, but we'll also include broken, sexually confused people because we are. All of us are. We'll invite them into our homes and our church gatherings and our community groups without any kind of qualification because that's us, and that's what Jesus did. We'll listen to them, we'll love them, and we'll gently start to share God's story with them. And and here's the thing. Religious people will hate us for that type of ministry. The, The extremely conservative religious people, they'll hate us for that kind of ministry. So how do we minister to the fringes or the extremes? We, we love them. We listen to them. We invite them to church as well. And I think this is, this is what we have to do, and we can pray to this end. We, we tell a comprehensive theological story. We don't just quote Leviticus 18. We tell a comprehensive, beautiful theological story that's more beautiful than what they walked into a church with saying, that's me. Like, my, my sexuality is me. That's my, that's my everything. And that... It's not saying it's not a part of you. It's just saying there's something more beautiful. We tell a comprehensive scheme or theological story about Christ, the ultimate husband who died for them, his figurative wife, that when they receive it, eventually quells the angst of the uber pro-gay agenda types, but also the angst of the condescending religious right types. It does it at the same time. And that's what we have to do. That's why we preach the gospel every Sunday. It's like we're not talking about this stuff every Sunday, but then we kind of are indirectly because the gospel is, is not just for like bad people or just for good people. It's saying everyone's bad and we need Christ, right? Like we need his grace. Grace says nothing you do can earn this stuff. And, uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's the road of Christ and that's why he was crucified even though it was his plan. But anyway, that's a different sermon. All right, and then third here. Uh, Whatever our sexual perversions, we all have them. To those who have turned in on themselves and self-gloried, Jesus offers cleansing. Praise be to God. This is how this preaches to us, you guys. Hear the word of God. Hear, Hear God's loving word for you in this, wherever you're at. Let me read this again in context. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Okay, so we instantly have just covered everybody in the room, all right? So, but we'll keep going here. There's a longer list, but we've just instantly covered everyone in the room. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, those who worship themselves and other things, nor adulterers, nor men who practice, look at all the sexual language in this, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit, will inherit the kingdom. I like that revilers are in there too. It's kind of like, well, I feel like I can check off a couple of boxes and then revilers you know, like, or greedy, like who hasn't done that? It's like that list in Romans where it has all these things and then it throws in disobedient to parents, right alongside sexually immoral, disobedient to parents, like it's on the same level. But anyway, talk about, you know, floor leveling statements, right? None are righteous, none are good, all are saved by the blood of Jesus or we're not saved at all. That's why these statements are in like this in, in the Bible, but, but okay, let's keep going though. Here's what it says. And such were some of you. This is written to the church. But you were washed. And he's writing this to people who have not like perfectly figured this out. It's not like they've stopped sinning. They are washed because they were washed by Jesus. They're not washed because they stopped sinning. They're washed because they believe in the gospel. You're washed, you're sanctified or made holy, and you are justified or declared perfect or righteous or innocent in God's sight through Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, Here's the question. Do you fit into that list somewhere? If you do, I have great news for you. The gospel is for you. 
Jesus was pinned to a cross for you. We have all turned in on ourselves, homosexual or not, but homosexuality images that particularly. We've all done it. We've self-gloried. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. And the wages of that sin, so what we earn from that sin is death, it says in Romans. So Jesus came to, to like glorify God and be the glory of God and shine, outshine our sin and save us and wash us and offer us a better not just that, but I think offer us a better, more glorious vision of what it means to be both male and female. And that's the last piece here um, is a final question. Does the story really captivate you? When I talk about the story, again, again, referring to the gospel story, the story about a God who came to earth to become human, to bleed for you and die for you, and overwhelm and slay demons in the process for you, and fight the greatest of battles for you, and love you to the point of spending his last breath for you, to become shame-ridden for you, stripped naked on the cross for you. And a God who sent his son to become that. So it's the son, Jesus, wanting to do that, being obedient to his father, willingly laying his life down for you. But God the Father saying, you're so important to me that I'm going to give my son's life that you might be saved. Like, this stuff doesn't, this doesn't happen When's the last time anyone did that for you? No one's ever done that for you or me, right? God has done this for you. Does the story captivate you? What can you be doing to ensure that it captivates you more? That's a great question too. If it doesn't, that's okay. But what does that mean about your life or your friendships or your community or how you read the Bible or if you do it all? Is the story more important to you than sexual preference? Is the story more important to you than gender fluidity? Is the story more important to you than even marriage itself? Here's a, here's a vision of the church, and I'll end with this. Um, I've said I'm going to end with this about three times. This is the real ending now. So um, th- this, is a, this is a vision of the church. I think by God's grace we have this at Hiawatha. Praise God. But let's strive after this more. But what if, and for some of you that are brand new to the church maybe, what if this were true? What if you could be a part of a community of people that actually was like this? Okay, so here's the image. What if we were a community of people who were gay and straight, married and unmarried, men and women, old and young, liberal and conservative, all with different types of sexual sins, being saved together by Jesus, repenting and turning together to the new way of living that he offers us, in himself, befriending each other. So all those types of people are befriending each other and all together are valuing heterosexual marriage together as the Bible instructs. But more than that, valuing the story even more. So not like envying each other when some get married and some don't or envying singleness when we don't want to be married anymore, you know, or fighting across those boundaries I talked about before, but all believing we're dining at the table of Jesus together. Valuing the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Knowing there's something bigger than us going on in the world. Not settling for counterfeit stories, but believing we are born or reborn into a much greater story of a strong husband-like God dying for the weak, helpless church, the, the, the bride who needed, who needed him to save us or we never would be saved. This is... Um, this is the gospel, guys. And what if we had a church that was like that? Wouldn't that be amazing? I think we do. So to whatever degree what we do, 
thank God for that. It, to whatever degree that we don't, let's pray for that and, and work at that. And I think the gospel allows for that. It, it doesn't put up these fences outside of our building that Jesus never does. And yet it doesn't give us the freedom to live a counterfeit narrative or tell a less beautiful story. God loves us too much to like offer on a platter this like not as good tasting meal. And so what if we believe that wherever we were sexually, marriage-wise, gender-wise, old, young, liberal, conservative, so politically but otherwise as well theologically, but we're all being drawn into this greater story with Christ at the head and the cross at the head and the empty tomb at, at, the, at the climax of this and we had love and friendship with each other. I think that's a great, I think that's a beautiful vision and, I, and we're not even done yet. Next week we'll talk about this even more but the story is the whole, that's the whole piece. That's the moving kind of formative, yeah, just, just the moving piece of this whole thing that if, if the story does not captivate you then... Um, Pray that it would. Read about it more. Sing about it more. Eat it more. Believe it for the first time. It really is true. And it is why marriage and gender exist as they do in the world. So with that said, let's pray. We'll close the final song. Uh, God, thank you for, uh, thank you for this. Um, thank you for today. Uh, this is a hard topic to talk about. This is um, not exactly the least... Uh, um, controversial thing out there right now so that but we thank you that you talk about this stuff lovingly and gently with us that your word is clear it's true which means you must love us because you want us to know the truth uh, but also it, it's it's uh, strangely equally inclusive and, and welcoming to of all kinds of people whatever our orientation um, yet God uh, the story is about you it's not about us our feelings our predispositions our um, temptations, our orientations are, are not the final say-all and end-all and be-all, but yours is. And what you want for our lives, what you want for the world, this is the story you're telling. There are counterfeit stories in the world, and then there's one true one. Help us to be about the true one. It just is better. And so how we live and teach and breathe and sing and eat and, and what we celebrate, what we abstain from, and how we talk about healthy heterosexual marriages and how we read the Bible and all that stuff, it matters. God, so just forgive us our sin, all of us in the room. Forgive us for turning in on ourselves. And thank you that, Jesus, you help us to sort of turn outward again and receive from you and not suppress you anymore and not hold you back as the one diverse or different from us, but receive the diverse love of a God who is other than us, who is kind of hetero uh, to us or other than us or different from us. So. Um, God bless us. As we respond here, help us to sing as though the gospel is true and real because it is to rejoice that we are washed and um, to leave here encouraged. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.